Hello, everybody. I'm Pasha Marlowe, and this is the Let Pleasure Be the Measure podcast. I bring you today a special guest, Molly Burney, who is a clinical life coach, a speaker, and a writer who I connected with on Instagram and just have been enjoying her, following her Instagram feed and her very wise and clear and compassionate messages. So thank you for being here, Molly. Absolutely, my pleasure. Wise, clear, and compassionate. Boy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell my mom you said these things. This is lovely, thank you. I have a really, when I get excited about saying I talk really fast and I get really frenetic. So whenever I make a video on Instagram, when I look back on it, I'm like, okay, Pasha, slow it down, like, simplify. So whenever I see your posts, I'm like, oh, cause it takes a moment to receive and absorb new information. And mm-hmm. I appreciate that as a listener. So I'm going to learn to slow down as a speaker too. Boy, I, I so relate to this as someone who speaks a mile a minute and you know, compounded by the fact that my social media person says like, hey, you, you gotta do these, you gotta start doing videos straight to the camera, 28 seconds. I'm like, how do I, how do I fit content into 28 seconds? So, and, and make it sound like I'm not trying to catch my goddamn breath anyhow. Thank you. It certainly doesn't feel that way when I'm uh, when I'm putting the content out there. So it's oh, good to know that it. Great. No, you fit a lot of content in those 28 seconds, and you get really to the to the meat of it. You know, you're not just talking about simple things. You're 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 really. I think I appreciate the fact that you go deep into the um, mindfulness and the psychology of thought. Thank and you. Presence. Yeah, it's really good. Well, it's- I think that's one of the big differences too between coach and therapist. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I even said this in a recent video, but that if, if therapy is a little like termites, then coaching is like a buzzsaw. It can be good coaching, really, really effective. Um, and uh, it, surgical in a very different way than therapy can be. And that's not to say that it's, it's better. It's simply, it's a, a different tool. It's a different conversation. Absolutely. And both of us have in similarity uh, coming from the world of therapy. We used to be therapists, mm-hmm. both Molly and I, and became coaches. Um, and I'm so glad you don't just call yourself a life coach because goodness knows there's enough of those, but I really love the way you define it, clinical life coach. And so, um, how, how is your coaching different, I guess, from therapy? Just sure. Um, well, I think of it as life coaching with an eye towards mental health. So inevitably we end up working through anxiety and um, elements of depression. I, I work a lot with entrepreneurs just to make sure that that their anxiety is not irrigating the infrastructure of what they're building, or like the, the compulsive overachievers who are um, constantly driven to to do more, do more, do more, but not necessarily born of intelligence, but like as a solution to a problem. So, are we taking action that that is a creative act, or are we taking action out of fear and completely born of shame? So. Um, it, it's, it's directive, it's collaborative, that's the coaching element, but I like the clinical underpinnings because I, I like explaining, like, look, here's, here's the pathology that we're looking at that's driving this. Mm-hmm. Um, also, here's what we understand about this particular pathology based on how it's been studied and broken down. Here are some cognitive behavioral intervention. Here's a, a coaching intervention. Here's a dialectical behavioral intervention. So we're using all of it in, um, to be able to, to work with them, with the whole person, but what I like about the coaching too is that I'm I'm drawing from my body of experience personally, uh, not just the body of academic knowledge. So I I like to think of it as like the blood that I left on the field is now a contribution <laughs> to my clients because it's I, that's where I'm coaching from. Absolutely. Do you feel like you get better every year just as a more effective coach? I like to think so, but I don't think that's something one can can reflect on themselves. You'd have to ask my clients for confirmation on that. 
Yeah, I suppose there's years like while we're delivering the child and nursing all night long and we're asleep for five that we might not be at our tip top shape. But I think right, right. I'm wiser with life experience and more mm-hmm. perspective. I certainly know that I come at my uh, clients with a more empathy and humor um, with every absolutely. So, so yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And so you live where? Well, I, we've been in Los Angeles forever, but we, we've moved temporarily up to Park City, Utah just to escape the pandemic. And so we've been just roosting up here in the Wasatch Mountains. And um, my, my the husband is a therapist. Um, I was almost going to say my therapist is a husband, which is also not true. Um, <laughs> forgive me. So both of us are working online. We have our, our now 10-month-old son who is... Can you swear on this podcast? Yes, we can. Okay, ten month old son, really fucking cute. Um, I'm also especially biased here, but yeah, we've we've just been up in uh, in the mountains skiing and seeing clients and raising our boys. So it, it's oh. been a nice kind of sanctuary, frankly. It sounds beautiful between a baby and the mountains. Like that's it. I mean, there's not much more pleasure I can think of. If you said divine pleasure, I'm thinking mountains and children on my lap but that would be well, well I we I do a lot of baking too I we got that going for us and, food. and we talked about chocolate I mean oh yeah this is important we need no sleep we need mm-hmm. mountains babies chocolate anything yeah, else no in, in in Maslow's hierarchy yeah the hierarchy of needs I'm pretty sure pancakes are in there too um I, I could be wrong about that you let me know so how do you define pleasure Molly Oh man, um, I was just having this conversation about joy with a client recently, and and um, her understanding of joy was was simply happiness. And I'm saying I, I think there's there's not enough depth in that. That happiness is an experience. Joy is the ability to really embrace all of the experiences that that we we come across, and that that's from contentment to grief. Like joy is the ability to embrace grief and feel it fully. Here, I, and I think pleasure. Pleasure has a depth in it as well, but in pleasure, we're really looking at: Are we present with whatever we're 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 marinating in or indulging? Are we really present for it? Because if we are, there, pleasure is available in in many more constructs than we really think it is. But as I was saying to you earlier, um, you know, probably ten years ago, you could have asked me, "What do you require for for pleasure?" And I would have answered, "It would have been a big slab of chocolate cake and probably an orgasm." and uh, some sort of series to binge watch that I would consider that pleasure. But if my relationship to those things is where I'm not actually present, where I'm, I'm using those things as sedation or distraction, rather than I'm really being present and, um, and indulging them and making a meal out of the experience. Um, it's, it's not the same. I just lost the end of my sentence there, but you, you get the point where I'm going. <laughs> no savoring it. I mean, what good is chocolate cake and an orgasm if you're not present in it and savoring in it and enjoying it. And in, before we started talking, you're like my 10 month old might come in and, and cry as, as your husband's putting him down for a nap. And of course I'm thinking, well, that would be fantastic. Like, <laughs> hear a baby cry. Like I'm going to start lactating after 13 years. Of like, and that is in my pleasure. That's not pleasurable of hearing right. a cry or seeing a baby is not in everybody's pleasure. But like, to me, that's like touching my heartstrings. So everybody has their own flavor of pleasure mm-hmm. and that we can sit in it and, and be present to it is beautiful. Yes. Totally, totally. I, I, it makes me think of um, just, he's been teething, my son, not my husband. Wow. Um, but uh, so he, he's doing the like up at 4.30 in the morning, he's crying and he needs the Tylenol. And um, 
you know, how, how do I move that experience from being a martyr, which I'm also really good at, like, God, we get up and I'm fucking tired and oh boy, oh, wow. like all that noise versus can, is it possible to actually find some joy and some pleasure in this? Can I embrace going to comfort my son? If I'm present with it, I totally can. If I'm just in the narrative, then I'm suffering. Like suffering is just the commentary on the circumstance. Like this shouldn't be happening. I should get some sleep. He shouldn't be crying. But if I'm simply in the moment, I can actually find some pleasure there on a good day. On a good day. And on the days that aren't so good and you're like, yeah, there's nothing good and pleasurable about this. That's when I turn it into comedy because I think it's fun to say, how bad is this? Like how bad, much worse can this get? You know, right. Like, and then you, and then you can almost find humor in the mm-hmm. pain or ridiculousness or inconveniences and uh, yeah, reframing it somehow in your brain is very helpful. Uh, totally. Know, yeah. Totally. Like- in, in those moments, like I, I find the funniest material is like my, my own capacity for self-indulgence and martyrdom that I shouldn't have to get out of bed to give my boy time. Let him just, it goes on and on, but you get the point. He's like, I'm, I'm birthing teeth. <laughs> through my gums and you're complaining about getting out of bed (laughs) yeah poor mom poor mom you know what they say about teething that if adults had to go through it consciously that they would have to be sedated this poor kid man yeah yeah one little toothache like your day is toast yes miserable miserable i know that brings up a whole lot of thoughts and jokes about like how different people handle pain Mm, oh my goodness yeah yeah but no we we don't know um what those little ones are experiencing with teething so i know i know so it is beautiful to have those moments it's not always beautiful in the moment now looking back i'm like ah four in the morning when the sun hasn't even come up and it's just me and my baby working through some emotions like that's beautiful that's that's exactly that's exactly what I keep trying to remind myself when I'm pacing back and forth and patting his back and he's screaming in my ear and I'm feeling sorry for myself. First of all, can I feel a little more sorry for him? Yes, I can work out that muscle. And second of all, can I imagine that in three years I might be dying to have this moment? Yes. Of course. Yes. Of course. So it really requires more creativity than a really myopic perspective that we have in the moment of this shouldn't be happening. Absolutely. And I think all mothers are going to relate to this out there. And sometimes we've been calling it like um, pleasurehood, you know, this combination mm. of like pleasure and mommyhood all together. Um, but you know, you always, we always talk about our baby's head smelling so good when they're so mm-hmm. little. And so my 13 year old's head does not smell so good anymore because of hormones <laughs> and sweat, but because of his pain, he often sleeps with me. And sometimes at night when I'm like, oh, the grief, like this boy is taking up the bed, he's feeling the blankets, he's like getting up all night long and needing my help. I just like sometimes smell his head. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I, I know how precious this is and how mm. fortunate am I 13 years later to have the time and space and, and um, wherewithal to realize the precious. Totally. And, and being present is, is the portal to finding that being precious rather than uh, endorsing and recycling our own commentary of the blankets and you're staying up so much space and like that narrative. Absolutely. And one of the posts you wrote recently, which I thought was really funny and really called me out of my shit. You said, if you're meditating to avoid the guilt of meditating, it defeats the purpose of meditating. <laughs> 
look, I, I, I don't coach any material where I haven't personally been here, uh, right, at least for the most part on Instagram. So I, I what prepared me to, for that post is years of self-abuse for resisting my meditation practice, which you know, now I don't have any resistance for, but God knows I did. And the resistance was part of the meditation practice. So I don't think there's enough enough room to include all the the um, the reactivity that we have to a discipline like this. And mm. you know, there, there's room for resistance. There's room for mm. all of it. I know it's a good idea and I teach mm -hmm. people to do it and I used to do it. And for some reason, the day goes by and mm -hmm. then I realize, ah, turns out I didn't do it. So sometimes I try to like sneak it in while I'm falling asleep. I'm like, this counts. I mean, it counts as meditation because I'm lying down still, but I'm like literally doing it to check it off the list of like, well, you tried meditation. So it's right, so funny right. what we do to ourselves. <laughs> totally, totally. So it, it would, in order for something to change, something has to become more important than something else. And it's hard to prioritize meditation. It really is, especially if we don't feel like we're getting any benefit from it. Um, and that's where our job is to be a little more curious. Am I so sure that I'm not getting any benefit? Am I so sure that I don't want to prioritize this? Am I so sure that I don't value what's actually going to come from this? Am I so sure I even fucking know what's going to come from this? So anyhow, the, that curiosity would have to be more important than, at least for me, the days where I'm like, I don't want to meditate, but the desire for comfort or the desire for relief. You, you prioritize it. And then yeah, yeah. you're able to talk slower than I can. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm still a mile a minute here. <laughs> it's so funny how it evolves um, because I used to spend decades as a wellness professional and health coach and exercising, I don't know, at least one or two hours a day and teaching right. something like 20 classes a week. And in the past year and a half, as I've embraced pleasure, which is, you know, food and taking care of my kid and making podcasts and writing books, it's not, it's still in my pleasure to exercise, but it's not right now my priority. So yeah. I've redefined um, what it is to be well, because mm -hmm. it used wellness was fitness and endurance and flexibility mm -hmm. and I would not do well on those tests at the moment but right. I feel more well I still feel more well I might not I love that shape wise by society as fit but I love how we can redefine for ourselves at any time what it is we prioritize and what it is we want to bring into our lives to redesign our our own mm -hmm. pleasure to redesign our lifestyle to redesign our relationships it's up to us which, which is supposed to evolve anyway it's not like your standard for wellness when you were 20 should be your same standard for wellness when you're 40 you know frankly our standard for wellness when we're 20 is probably bankrupt by the time we're 30 mm -hmm. so we need to re-examine that it's appropriate that your definition of pleasure or wellness has evolved over the years. That would be unreasonable for it not to have. That's a sign of mental health, I think. There you go. Well, good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because not just 10 years ago, so I'm 50 now, but I still remember having conversations about 10 years ago where the, um, the pinnacle of your physical fitness was, can you still fit in your wedding gown? Which was oh 20 years this later. So like, arbitrary. Yeah, like, and I just, when I think back that, that that was even on the list of things that mattered, like people would post on Instagram, like, look at me, I can still fit in my wedding gown. And I'm they like, still do, they still they, do this shit. Oh, I don't follow those people anymore. <laughs> oh, I, I don't either, but I have clients who have, have mentioned, yeah, well, this here's the, the arbitrary standard that I've decided to hold up to today. It's 
it's just it is just bananas to me and and how little critical thinking goes into and this is not for, for those that suffer from it but as a culture that we've decided uh that that's that's the standard how little critical thinking actually goes into that without considering all the variables that have happened between now and your wedding and anyhow i, I know all day, I, know but... I will tell you one funny story though just because it's reminding Please, me of, yeah. i have adhd and this is how my brain works but when i used to live in maryland a couple of, a couple of years ago and I was still working as a personal trainer. Um, Maryland was a different culture than Maine. And one of my clients, um, I asked her what her goals were. And usually people say lose weight, lose fat, whatever, it bores me. Um, but then she said, I want to increase my thigh gap. And I was like, so come again. She's like, I want to increase my thigh gap. Goal one. And uh-huh. then I said, how are we going to monitor that? And why does it matter? And she goes, well, if you could just every week measure it and then let me know if it's increasing and I'm thinking like I want to get up in there every week like that's not my role and like why is this so important but for her Mm -hmm. it was like the sign it was like the sign of her fitness um oh goodness so it was really one of the moments where I was like wow I think I've outgrown this job like right Right. fitness culture you know um, if that's the barometer for wellness and goodness and enoughness then check the box and go to bed great we did it yep i'm like yep I, i'm not talking about emotional mental sexual social health i'm i'm not watching you exercise to increase your body. <laughs> it's not happening i'm not your person i'm not your trainer so yeah yeah <laughs> wow oh my goodness <laughs> so how has your practice as a clinical life coach changed since you become a mommy? Wow, well, it, it's really changed more since COVID, of course, um, oh. that I went completely online uh, at the beginning of my third trimester is when uh, when I was pregnant is exactly when COVID hit, it was March last year. Mm. Um, and so then I went into lockdown, I, I switched to seeing all my clients virtually and I was working, I was living in LA, obviously. So all of my clients had been in person, all of my clients were local. Now, the cool thing is that all of my clients are all over the states and and some international as well. So it's um, I'm certainly not limited in the same way. But um, I went completely online. I actually got on Instagram as a result of COVID, which was you know, it, its own battle. I it just had so much noise about not wanting to get involved. And finally, I was like, oh well, this is kind of a requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, but but really, since having a baby, it's been more about. God, I'm I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but how how present can I really be? Um, because I am the compulsive overachiever that uh, my plan was to take no maternity leave. I was like, well, we did a natural home birth. I'll be back in a week. Like I'll see clients the following week. We'll be fine. Um, I know I'm a psychopath. It's, <laughs> it's just unreasonable. And my coach was even saying, Molly, this is ridiculous. You got to lead by example here. You got to take a break. Um, and and I, I, was, I would mention it to my clients. Like, I need you to know, here's my plan. I imagined I will need more time, but here's what my brain says I'm capable of. And I know this off. is a blind spot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be, but I'll be back. Um, I, I was completely aware. Look, this is my pathology in play. Saying your identity is all work. If you drop the ball on that, you're fucked. Um, your clients need to know you're available, and if they don't know you're available, they'll leave. Like there was that sort of nonsense. Um, and and what it what it left me doing was not honoring the the. I, gosh, my, my first thought was like the time my body needed to heal, and that's part of it. Even though I'm just sitting there talking with clients, um, but it also didn't acknowledge the fact that. I just created a fucking life mm-hmm. and that I need some time to witness what this little life is doing and what my life is doing as a result. And how do I fucking feel? 
-hmm. Those were not questions that I, even though I, I, if I was coaching myself, I could have easily have said, hey, here's what you need to watch for. And, or Molly, this is ridiculous. You need to take a longer maternity leave. You know, at the very least, it, it was like it, knowing that I was running at the brick wall and I was like, I see it. I see the wall. I know I'm going too fast. I just got to see how this is going to go. <laughs> you had to smash it to the wall. To- I did. I, I, and, and the truth is, like, I, I did go back to work after a week and then immediately took more time off afterwards. Oh, okay. Um, so you tried. And then, yeah, and then- I, yeah, yeah. And, and really, I took what I did was I took a couple more weeks off and then just limited it to, okay, I'm, I'm working then six days a week and I'll see three clients a day and that's it. So I kept it yes. very simple, very, very minimal. And, um, but it, it, it also means that, you know, in terms of the, the transition with this, with my boy, like being a mom and being a working mom, um, is that when, when I'm on cashew duty, we call them the cashew around the house. Um, but when I'm on cashew duty, I can't be scrolling Instagram. I can't be trying to write. I can't be trying to email a client back. I cannot do any of that um, because I'm, I'm just not present. And I don't mean that in any sort of, you know, I'm, I'm holier than other moms who do scroll Instagram. Like, it's not like I, I don't or don't succumb to it. Um, but that the overall intention is if I, if I can be present, I want to be able to do that. And, and that that's a heroic act for someone who is so identified with must achieve, must perform, must uh, produce, must, you know, Yes. Whatever, whatever the type A noise is. It is heroic. You went from being like productivity porn star to presence in your, in your, with your baby. I think it was great. Yeah. I love that you made that shift. And I imagine you couldn't have made that shift without the support because it's, I am so happy that you have a partner in this and I assume he helps sometimes. <laughs> he's, and- he's amazing. I could not ask for a better partner. And, and the, gosh, the, the backstory on us is that we met in treatment 15 years ago, which really? is not recommended in any, in like any, any kind of treatment. Yeah, I was in for an ass kicking eating disorder and he was in for uh, for drugs at the time. And we were babies, we were in our early twenties. Had we been any healthier, we would have walked away from each other countless times, but we just we just kept signing up for the crazy and, and ended up growing together. Oh, and you grew at a similar enough pace to expand with and next to each other is really remarkable. I can imagine that that doesn't usually work out so well. Uh, or well, there were there were certainly snapshots where you, you could have looked at us and gone, yeah, this is not working out so well because um, we we both had so much more growth to do and um, you know, the, the difficulty is when you prioritize the relationship over the growth, you end up kind of dragging the other person through the mud. So we we dragged each other through our respective muds and we did some some time apart and some time together and um, and a, a lot of work on ourselves and later as a couple. But I I don't I can't think of a better fucking teammate that I could ask for uh-huh. than than Clint. He's amazing. Oh, good. So good. Yeah. And now you do retreats, couples retreats together because he's working as a therapist. You're working as a coach. And that's right. That's right. Like the mountains, it sounds very pleasurable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in October, we have our, uh, a couples retreat in person coming up. It's in, um, it's just outside Morro Bay in California. So those mm-hmm. who are local to Los Angeles, it's just a few, few hours drive. Sweet. What do you enjoy most about working with couples? How, what do you think is like the, the real big issue that you want to, um, to tackle in this retreat? Well, I, I think couples work is really individual work, but done in the presence of, of your partner. And that's what makes it so goddamn courageous mm-hmm. is that you're, you're doing it with the witness, the, the, the person who is 
ideally you know, the, the most vulnerable to you and to whom you are safe being more vulnerable. So, um, you know, I, I also believe in, and this is gonna sound so cheesy, I can't even believe it's gonna come out of my mouth, but um, I fully believe that, that finding the experience of unconditional love in a, a romantic relationship, in a marriage, in that container can be incredibly healing and transformatively so. So um, that's a lot of the work that, that, we, that we're looking to do. We tend to work with the couples that have, have done individual work, but maybe haven't done uh, um, couples work together or that one partner has been in, in therapy, but the other hasn't necessarily been a part of the conversation. So this is a good jumping off point for those, those kinds of people. Yeah, I think couples work is, is powerful and um, certainly been transformative in my marriage and when I used to do marriage and family therapy, I think the more people you can get in the room, uh, the better to figure out how, how to make that system uh, function better. So yeah, I think it's totally, yeah. really intriguing to see uh, two people together um, as a couple in therapy or, or in a retreat setting. Yes. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And with your background um, with an eating disorder, how does, that, how does that play into pleasure now? Because I, I imagine there's some past shame stories and pain mm -hmm. points around bringing pleasure into food, I assume. Sure, sure. Well, at this point, I'm, uh, gosh, it's 2000, what, what year is it? <laughs> it's 2021. 2021, I think. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm, at this point, I'm 14 years in recovery from uh, the ass-kicking bulimia that had got me into treatment in the first place. So I don't deal, deal with nearly as much uh, noise in that respect as, as possible, or as possible, as, as I used to at one point. Um, but in terms of your, your, your question about pleasure, it, again, it, it comes back to, to mindfulness. And um, I, you know, I, I think there's a time when, uh, when mindfulness around food is a skill you want access to. And then there are some foods that for, for me personally, we're not meant to be eaten mindfully. <laughs> like I find pleasure in housing a bag of fucking kettle corn um, without having to be mindful about it. And that's not to say that I'm not present with it. I can be completely present with it and be mindless about actually eating the popcorn, that, that, that the indulgence of the experience is what's pleasurable. Um, that, that that's no longer hooked up to shame for me. And that's a direct result of, uh, frankly, a ton of personal work and a ton of breaking up the, the uh, I guess, my own addictive relationship with the, the diet industry that we all tend to have, like the illusion that kettle corn is a moral issue at all is one that needs to be debunked. So, um, and that takes some work. It takes some, some, real, um, some real focus. Absolutely. And I like that you said that there's, there's um, presence in the mindlessness. Like, that's interesting. because There can be, there, I think there can be, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, I can see how that is true. You could be present to the fact that at that moment you're indulging, or you could be present yeah, like in that moment exactly. you're, you're binging on the popcorn. Or like, yeah, eating a little beyond fullness. And that's part of my relationship with kettle corn is that I'm probably gonna eat a little beyond fullness. It's the same idea of like, if my husband and I make pancakes, I know I'm, I'm probably interested in having more pancakes than my stomach actually wants. Okay, that's my relationship to pancakes. And, um, and I'm not having pancakes all the time and I've, I don't have a ton of noise about pancakes after I've had them and that's, that's the recovery, I suppose. But um, that these are, are so, so long have been foods that, um, that have moral implications about them, that we're using them as barometers for our goodness or badness in a way that's not helpful, not, not to mention the fact that it's, it's really gatekeeping on what's allowed to be pleasurable and what's not. 
Absolutely. Yes. There's been many days, weeks, probably decades where it was a good day. If I ate healthy, mm-hmm. ate clean, exercise, drank enough water. And if I didn't do those things, it wasn't really a, a good day. Even if I spent the day eating ice cream on a beach with my mm-hmm. kids watching them yeah. in the ocean. I'm like what? So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's funny how long it takes us sometimes to get these messages. Unless I'm an extremely slow learner and, and very, very proud to admit it. I have no shame about that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I'm certainly thrilled for you that you have, um, sounds like created, really mindfully created by moving to the mountains um, <laughs> and getting away from the, the noise and the commotion of, of LA, um, created for yourself a really sweet, mindful, peaceful living and and it's been a time of like catching our breath which is ironically what we're calling the retreat catch your breath um but that we feel like we've we've sort of we we retreated to the mountains without realizing this is what we were doing that we're setting aside a a lot of time for yoga and a lot of time for meditation and a lot of time for reading and we're not watching a bunch of tv and that's not uh, that's not usually how we how we live. Not to say that we're not watching uh, uh, binge watching Game of Thrones right now. We absolutely are rewatching the entire season, all seasons, except for season seven. But pancakes, popcorn, orgasms, like all right, right now, yeah, it's a wide spectrum here. But but see, this is not about saying that meditation is more important than Game of Thrones and we're, we're dismissing Game of Thrones in favor of meditation. We're in fact saying, no, no, we just want to include meditation in the value system along with Game of Thrones and cake and an orgasm and whatever it happens to be. So it's, um, it's, it's been a time of slowing down, catching our own breaths and, um, and reflecting in a, in a really exciting way and then getting to look forward. What's coming? What are we prepared for? Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. It's rare that I talk to somebody who's in a relationship that they're very happy and content with. So it's just, oh, yeah. it's really refreshing uh, and lovely and hopeful. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. I, I hear that from clients a lot um, because I, I frequently have people who are coming in for relationship stuff, either looking to get into a relationship or, or have to get out of it or have to stop getting into the same relationship. And um, again, what, you know, what I like about coaching is that my clients generally get to know as much about me as I know about them. So, um, I'm, I'm coaching with material that comes up in my relationship. Like here's the fight we're working on. Here's my reactivity that I'm working on. And, and, and here's how you might benefit from taking this particular off ramp that I took or whatever it happens to be. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, all clients can, uh, should be in their relationship as I am not, not by a long stretch, but, that as a coach, I think I'm, I'm representative of someone who's doing the work along with you rather yeah. than um, I'm, a, I'm a therapist and I'm a blank slate or, or implicitly on a pedestal. I don't, I don't know that that's the way I, I want to operate. Yeah, that's certainly why I appreciate um, coaching more. It's more collaborative and I can be more vulnerable and share more. Um, and I think it's wonderful that it's so action oriented and, and forward thinking and broader. Like I know I needed to step outside the constructs of what marriage and family therapy allowed. Right, right. That I can create my own um, work and space and create the space that I want for my clients um, is is really liberating. So, There's yeah. yeah, there is so much more more leeway and leverage and play mm-hmm. and um, a lot more oxygen. I think in in the coaching conversation, there certainly can be at least. Absolutely, and you're the only clinical life coach I know. And I think you said you kind of created that name, and I brought it up to a few people. Like, oh, that kind of makes sense. Um, so, so yeah, from a clinical life coach 
made up by a clinical life coach, Molly, to laughter and pleasure coach, which I don't know if that exists, but that's what I call myself. Like, it absolutely what, exists. That's your title, my dear. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we design our own damn life. Yes. <laughs> so good. Um, yes. Well, thank you, Molly. This has been lovely. I, my pleasure. <laughs> Truly my pleasure. Like not all of my pleasure podcasts are pleasant. Sometimes it's really difficult, sometimes spicy and juicy, but, um, but not always um, so pleasurable and hopeful. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm, I'm glad to, to offer not just the letter, but the spirit of the law here. Yay. Yay. So how can people find you, reach you, learn about your retreats and all the good things? Sure, sure. Uh, well, I'm, I'm reachable on, on Instagram at MB Clinical Coaching. Um, you can find me online at www.mollyburney.com. That's M-O-L-L-I-E-B-I-R-N-E-Y. Oh my gosh, why did I just spell it? <laughs> I always hear myself spell. I'm like, why halfway through it? Why am I doing this? Why? Anyhow, that's how you spell it if you need to know. Well, some people might be just listening and wanting to memorize it. And then there'll also be show notes where it'll be written. And then there'll be people who watch it on YouTube who will just be really endeared by by your, your little jig about it. So oh my gosh, I forgot this is this is like filmed, recorded. Oh, good. Not, not everybody watches. It's okay. It's okay. Wait, I'll just I'll encourage them to watch if a cute baby comes in the screen or something happens. Some of my guests right, right. come to podcasts. I'm like, oh, you're wearing that. Okay, so you probably want to watch this one. Is what I often <laughs> say. Um, but yes, this is a nice, pleasant one to listen to as well, for sure. So thank you so much, Molly, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And if anybody would like to continue the conversation with me, reach out to me at Pasha at PashaMarlo.com or slide a message into my mailbox at Instagram or Facebook. So thank you all for joining me today and I'll see you soon.